Hosea chapter 10. And uh, before we get into the lesson, I kind of want to take a minute to summarize a little bit again of what we've been through so far in the book, because chapter 10 is a sort of a summary of everything that has happened or a summation of everything that we've had since back since chapter 4. And then in chapter 11, we get to the part that's not quite so dark and <laughs> difficult to deal with, right? We start to see the light at the end of the tunnel in chapter 11. But this book um, is, is about the judgment that God is going to bring upon Israel. But it's also... Um, it's also a book that has a lot to do with the love of God, and that, that really is the ultimate theme. Remember we saw in the first three chapters, the, uh, the thing that set the theme for the book was that God had this prophet Hosea do a really strange thing. He had him marry a woman that he knew would be unfaithful to him. And the purpose of doing that was to serve as an illustration of the fact that God had made a covenant with this nation of Israel, and Israel has been disobedient to the covenant. And uh, so it is to explain how God feels about this disobedience or this rebellion, because in the Old Testament, Israel was pictured as the wife of Jehovah. And so it's, it's a book that really helps us understand how sin grieves God, because what happens with Hosea and Gomer, this wife that is unfaithful to him, is that she apparently for a very long time um, is, uh, is out running around with other men, and uh, it must have grieved his heart tremendously. But in the end, God tells Hosea to go and love this woman anyway. And he does. He goes and loves her in spite of her unfaithfulness. And that's what we'll get to in chapter 11. In chapters 4 through 10, we've been talking all about God's reasons for being angry with Israel. And it mostly has to do with the northern kingdom. Uh, remember we said that the, the kingdom after Solomon's day had split in two, and the northern kingdom is usually called Israel or Ephraim, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. And there is uh, some about both Israel and Judah in this book, but it's mostly about the northern kingdom. That's mostly he's, who he's talking to, because the northern kingdom was going to be judged first. It was a, a little over 100 years before the southern kingdom was uh, overrun by Babylon that the northern kingdom is overrun by Assyria. And so all through these chapters, God has been explaining why it is that he is so upset with Israel. And he uh, kind of sums that up here in chapter 10 before we get to chapter 11. And in chapter 11, he'll talk about why he still loves Israel anyway. But uh, it says here in chapter 10, <clears throat> in verse 1, Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he hath increased the altars. According to the goodness of his land, they have made goodly images. And uh, this image of Israel as a vine or a vineyard is one that God uses pretty often in the Old Testament. Um, the idea was that he gathered them into that promised land. He plants them there. They were supposed to be fruitful. And uh, a vineyard especially was something that pictured joy um, because, you know, grapes are sweet and they would have added something to a, a diet that mostly had things that were, uh, you know, meat and salts and spices and things like that. And uh, even to have a little grape juice would be a pretty wonderful thing to have if all you ever had was water, right? You know, a little taste of grape juice once in a while would be something special. 
And so Israel was likened to a vine that was supposed to grow forth, be fruitful, and, and uh, be a blessing in the land. But here he says Israel, and we're talking especially about the northern kingdom here, is an empty vine. Now, the word that's translated empty here is an interesting one because it, it carries sort of a double meaning. It's, it speaks of a vine that is um, really well grown out and luxuriant, but it didn't bring forth much fruit. Now, I mentioned this at the end of class last week. It's kind of like if uh, any of you have ever put uh, too much fertilizer or miracle grow on a tomato plant or something like that. Sometimes you'll come out with these incredibly showy, leafy, big vines, but they have very little fruit on them, or almost none. And he says that's what Israel has become. They, they've been prospered greatly. And they didn't understand that it was God who had given them this prosperity. We talked about this some before, that there's no explanation for why a nation as small as Israel was, was able to even hold on and the location they were in with Egypt to the south and Assyria to the north, except that God was blessing them. And, but they have been blessed, and they have been prosperous, and they, uh, they've made quite a show of themselves, but they haven't brought any, forth any fruit to God. It says, He bringeth forth fruit unto Himself. And there's an expression where we could just sit down for a little while and think about what that means, because if you remember when we talked about uh, a while back we, we had some lessons on the tabernacle worship and you may remember that one of the things that was brought for sacrifices was the uh, the fruit of their fields. Not all the sacrifices were animals. Now you had to have animal sacrifices for example for the sin offering because there had to be a blood atonement. But uh, there were offerings of grain and things like that and they were supposed to bring those things, and especially at certain times of the year, like at the Feast of First Fruits, they were supposed to bring of the first fruits of their harvest and wave it before the Lord. There were other times they were supposed to bring those wave offerings and offer them to God. But here he says that they didn't bring any forth, forth any fruit to God. <laughs> they brought it forth unto themselves. And like we've said all along in this book, even though this book is addressed to Israel, there are a lot of lessons for us to learn in the church today because God's still God and a lot of the things He does or a lot of the positions He takes are still the same. God doesn't change. His attitude towards sin doesn't change. And uh, you probably remember Jesus uh, in certain passages in the Gospels, especially the Sermon on the Mount, uh, talks about how if you've done things for the praise of men, you have your reward. Right? If you give out your alms so that men can see you, and they praise you, you have your reward. Or if you pray out in the open so everybody can see you praying and see you making your great long prayers and they praise you for that, well, you have your reward. And that's sort of bringing forth fruit to yourself, isn't it? It's doing things religiously that bring glory to you rather than to God. And I want to say I think that's something we have to be very cautious about in the church because there's always such a temptation of pride to want to do things to impress other people rather than to glorify God. So, and we've we've got a, uh, a sort of a media culture in the world today where that temptation gets stronger all the time because we live in an age where everybody's trying to put on a show, right? <laughs> we we live probably in the fakest age mankind has ever known. 
because since the advent of social media, everybody is a media producer now. And it's getting very hard to tell what's real and what's fake these days uh, because <laughs> people can't just go on vacation anymore. They have to <laughs> take pictures of their vacation. To, you can't just eat lunch. You've got to take pictures of your lunch so you can put it on Facebook. And I, never, <laughs> I never have been able to fit in very well with the social media world because I've, it's, it's never once crossed my mind that anybody but me would care what I was eating for lunch, <laughs> right? <laughs> but... <laughs> Well, here we are, right? You know, and uh, but but the the and I'm not trying to get down on all that sort of thing. I'm just saying that there 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 becomes this temptation to to live life as sort of a shadow, where instead of actually just instead of actually living, you're you're thinking about all the time about how other people are going to see what you're doing, and uh, you can become pretty fake without realizing it, and, and, and that's one of the reasons why. I think it's one of the underappreciated reasons why so many people are so interested in their identity today. <laughs> you know, I think about this sometimes. We've got all sorts of different groups you can identify with. And, you know, around here, most of us are country people, but it's weird. People that are country people nowadays are not like country people used to be because the old country people didn't think about being country people. They just were. <laughs> Nowadays, you have to put on a show of being a country person. you got to have your, your boots and your John Deere shirt or whatever. And well, it's, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because, because in, the, in the old days, country people, when they went to town, didn't wear their boots. <laughs> they wore their boots to work. Right? When they went to town, they put on their nice shoes and got dressed up. Uh, but now you have to show that you're a country person, and we got people running around with John Deere shirts on that probably wouldn't even know how to start a tractor. <laughs> but it's an identity thing, and, and that's and that's what I'm getting at is as you, you're trying to promote an image more so than living in a reality. And uh, we can get into that in the church too, can't we? Trying to project an image. That's why we have to be so careful these days about. All the efforts to put church stuff out on social media or any kind of media or anything like that, you have to make sure that that it's not just an image, that we're giving attendance to the actual reality. You can be a great big vine that's grown out and everybody thinks it's really pretty, but it doesn't bring forth any real fruit that any that God cares about. And that's bringing forth fruit to yourself. Uh, there in verse 1, after that, it says, According to the multitude of his fruit, he hath increased the altars, according to the goodness of the, his land, they have made goodly images. And what that has to do with is that God prospered them, and instead of honoring God, they started honoring all these other idols. They got all this fruit coming in. God allowed them to be prosperous in that way. And instead of thanking God, they built altars to other gods because they seemed to think if They've been prospered. Well, now they've got the money to build more altars, right? You can afford to do things. It's funny how prosperity can hurt our spirituality. And, and that's, again, that's another thing we have to watch in, in the days in which we live um, compared to just about anywhere and just about any age in history. We are tremendously prosperous as much as we like to complain about things. We, we have life a lot easier than our forebears did and uh, have we used that prosperity to honor God or have we used it to follow after other things see we're not so much different from Israel really are we we didn't build altars that we bow down to 
we we built uh, all sorts of things maybe that we bowed down to in spirit and not physically. But anything that we covet or anything that becomes more important to us than God in the end is an idol. There's all sorts of things that can become idols. Uh, entertainment can become an idol. Sports can become, money can become an idol. A house can become an idol. Vacations can become an idol. And all sorts of different things can become an idol. And it's funny, isn't it, how the more we've prospered, we seem to have less time for God. Because that's the thing, when God gives you all sorts of nice things. One of the things that most people don't ever think about when they buy something new is that everything new you acquire is something else you have to take care of or do something with, right? And those things start to eat up your life, and you don't have time for God. And this is what these people have done. God has prospered them. Instead of worshiping God, they now have money to build all these nice new altars that will impress themselves or somebody else. And uh, according to the goodness of his land, they have made goodly images. They, they had the money now that they didn't have to maybe carve out their own sculptures for images. They could hire a sculptor to produce something really nice. And there's all sorts of spiritual warnings in this. You, you know, we, we can even do this in the church. We can, in the church, uh, spend a lot of time trying to make the, for example, the church building something incredibly impressive and beautiful for the world to see. And don't get me wrong, I think the church ought to look nice. We ought to care for God's house and take care of it and keep it neat and tidy, but it shouldn't be ostentatious, I don't think. I don't think God wants that sort of thing. And doing that uh, very often becomes more of a worship of ourselves than it does of God, doesn't it? Because there comes with that the temptation to say, hey, this is my church, isn't it something to look at? <laughs> you know. And next thing you know, you've departed altogether from what God wanted. And that's what it says in the next verse. Verse 2, their heart is divided. Uh, the book of James said a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And you can't have your heart divided between God and something else and still be pleasing to God. And uh, God help us, we've got a lot of divided hearts today, don't we? Hearts that don't put God really first. They've got other things that they want to take care of first. Some of these people in Israel still in their minds thought they were worshiping God to some extent, but they were worshiping the other gods too. And that sounds silly to us until we really examine our own lives sometimes, don't we? doesn't it? We want to have a space for God, but we want to have all the other things too. And uh, it says, They shall be found faulty, he shall break down their altars, he shall spoil their images. For now they shall say, We have no king, because we feared not the Lord. What then should a king do to us? He's talking about what will happen here when he sends the punishment. Now remember the history of this northern kingdom. Uh, we, we talked, we've talked several times throughout this book about how, first of all, God... Um, God did not really want them to have a king. They, uh, that was not the intention to begin with. They were supposed to just obey God. God finally allowed them to have a king. God anointed a king. And uh, that king, his dynasty, consisted of just himself because he immediately disobeyed God. So God then sets up David, which is a new dynasty ordained by God. That dynasty lasts two generations <laughs> before it falls apart. Because the people wanted a king from God. God allowed them to have a king. 
ten of the tribes decided they didn't like the king that God had put over them. And uh, so what happens now is God says, you didn't like the king I wanted. Well, I'm going to send the Assyrians to conquer you, and then you won't have a king at all. And so that's what he said the people would say, we have no king because we fear not the Lord. He said, then, what then should a king do to us? He said, if, we, if uh, we're in this trouble because we had a king and we still didn't fear the Lord, what good would it do for us to have a king? And that, by the way, is a principle that can be pretty well applied to the world we live in today. And I want to tell you this, politicians are not going to fix what's wrong with this country. And uh, one of the reasons we're in the mess that we're in right now is because people have come to have such a uh, cultic uh, worship of politicians and political parties to sort of think if we could just get this person or this party into power, everything would magically be all right. And that'll never happen. Because the core problem is in the heart. It's disobedience to God. It doesn't matter who you put in office. And one of the things you find... uh, even when they had some good kings sometimes. I was reading some in Jeremiah this week, and uh, it was talking there about how even in Josiah's day, uh, when Josiah turned his heart to, the God, to God, the people followed after him in form, but their hearts didn't really turn back to God. Josiah did, but even the godly king couldn't get all the people to turn their hearts to God. And uh, so these people are in real trouble here. They're not God's going to take their king away because they've been so disobedient. He says in verse 4, They have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment springeth up as hemlock in the furrows of the field. Now here again we have Hosea who is uh, an incredibly expressive writer. We've mentioned this a few times already. That he has a, a, a wonderful way of putting things. He says they've spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. Now what covenant is he talking about here? There's different commentators have different ideas about this. But it seems to me, uh, in the context of this book being about the marriage between God and Israel, that it would be talking about the covenant he made with Moses at Mount Sinai, because that's really where he called the nation out as his own people. And we've seen references to that covenant a number of times already in this book. And if you remember, just before God gave them the Ten Commandments, they stood out there on the plain before Mount Sinai and swore to God that they would keep His words. They promised Him, made covenant, made an oath to obey Him. And from the point of view of God, that was a, that was a wedding vow because this was the nation He had chosen to be His wife. And they promised to keep the covenant that God gave them. And uh, as we've mentioned several times before, God actually spoke the words out loud apparently before Moses went up or before Moses received the the written version on tables and brought it down the mountain. And so all the people knew the commandments before Moses came down. They knew that God had said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and thou shalt not take unto thee any graven image. And yet they'd already made a golden calf before Moses ever got down the mountain. So they had been unfaithful from the beginning. And so what he says to them here is, their judgment springeth up as hemlock in the furrows of the field. And like I said, that's one of, another one of Hosea's very memorable expressions because hemlock, as most of you know, is a poisonous plant. And uh, so 
that's what he says there. They've been sowing these fields, and we're going to have more in this chapter about sowing and reaping. Of course, that's an important principle in the Bible. We all remember that from the book of Galatians, right? So whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Well, they've sowed some things in the northern kingdom, in the furrows of their fields. We're going to have more about those furrows here in a minute, too. And uh, what they have sowed is idolatry and lies. They didn't sow the things God gave them. They didn't operate in the law of God or in His covenant. And it is an immutable principle of nature that if you sow a poisonous plant, you won't grow wheat out of that poisonous seed. Whatever kind of seed it is, that's what kind of plant will grow out of it. And you can't expect to sow ungodliness and iniquity and wickedness and expect goodness and holiness to come out of that. It never has worked. It never will work. And uh, the grace of God is a marvelous thing that He can take us who are wicked and sinful and make us new inside, but that doesn't change the fact of sowing and reaping. As a matter of fact, uh, even for Christian people in this world, you have eternal salvation, but some of us will, for the rest of our lives here on earth, be sowing or be reaping things from what we sowed when we were lost. You can do things to damage your body and things like that that can't be undone as long as you're in this body. And uh, there's a poison that they had sown. And so what they did was in this field where they were uh, plowing out to reap their, their corn or wheat, whatever it was, they were planting barley. Instead, what they're growing is poison, spiritually speaking. It says, The inhabitants of Samaria shall fear, in verse 5, because of the calves of Beth-Avon. For the people thereof shall mourn over it, and the priests thereof that rejoiced on it, for the glory thereof, because it is departed from it. Now, there's, again, a lot packed in this verse. If you remember what uh, Jeroboam did, he was the first king that rebelled against David's dynasty. He was the one that started this northern kingdom. And because he didn't want the people to go back up to Jerusalem to worship, he was afraid that would cause them to want to unite together again with the southern kingdom. He put up calves for them to worship in uh, Dan and Bethel. Dan in the northern part and Bethel down in the southern part of that kingdom so that they wouldn't have to go back to Israel. And uh, Hosea here again, you, you see a little bit of his sarcasm that we've seen all through this book. That, that word Beth-Avon, uh, that's a place right next to Bethel where they set up that calf. And he uses this name, I think, for a very important reason. Bethel means the house of God. Beth-Avon means the house of vanity. <laughs> and so when he talks about the calf there, it's not... Uh, instead of using the name Bethel, he uses the Beth-Avon, the house of vanity, the house of falsehood. Uh, and so he says that's what they did. They set up their calf in the place that was false. And he says they'll mourn over it. He says for the glory thereof, because it is departed from it. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, there's a historical allusion here. Because uh, if you remember in... Uh, well, it, it was during the days of uh, Samuel. Remember, he was the one that his, his mother left him there at the tabernacle to be raised by Eli. And during Eli's day, they fought a battle against the Philistines. They took the ark into battle. And you may remember they, 
expression that was used was Ichabod, which meant the glory had departed. Because of the disobedience of the nation, the glory of the Lord had departed from the place. Well, he's being sort of sarcastic about this here because these calves never had the glory of the Lord about them, <laughs> right? All they ever had was the glory of man. That's what we've been talking about here, fruit that they've brought forth to themselves. I wouldn't be surprised if these golden calves were very nice-looking calves. They probably got the best artist to make them, you know. I don't think they were crude or primitive sculptures. The, the northern kingdom there for a while was a, a good bit more cosmopolitan than the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was sort of rural, and they, the northern kingdom thought of them as backwoodsy people who didn't have the connections that the northern kingdom had with the more civilized, advanced world of the Syrians and the Assyrians and people like that. Uh, we'll talk more about that when we get to Amos. Amos was the hillbilly from the south who went up north to Bethel and just gave him what for. He's one of my favorite <laughs> preachers in the Bible. But uh, anyway, uh, the uh, the northern kingdom had pretty close associations with a lot of kingdoms that were very advanced, and I imagine that their their temples may have looked really nice. There may have been some glory to them, but all the glory they ever had was the glory that man can produce and not the glory that God can produce. And that glory will depart from the place. He says the time's coming when judgment falls. It says there in verse 6, It shall also be also carried unto Assyria for a present to King Jerob. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. Now, we talked about this King Jerob once before back in chapter 6. And I mentioned then that um, there, there is no record of an Assyrian king whose actual name was Jerob. And so what we have here is probably this is a nickname. And it means something like, um, has, has something to do with someone who is quick to quarrel or has a bad temper. And so I think Hosea gave him a nickname. We, we, we'll see all through this chapter he's playing around with names. He's already called Bethel, Beth-Avon. Beth and uh, now he calls this king, King Pick Quarrel, right? That's his name. He's the, he's the one who's looking for a fight. And uh, so that's what's going to happen to Assyria. It's going to be a, a present to this king. They're going to be carried away into captivity. Verse 7, as for Samaria, her king is cut off as the foam upon the water. And think about what that means, the foam upon the water. Uh, I'm sure most of you have been to the beach or someplace where you saw waves and you know how sometimes they'll break and there's foam on it. Well, there's not much substance to the foam, is there? You don't really worry about drowning in the foam. It's the wave underneath that can be concerning to you sometimes. But the foam hits the beach and just disappears, doesn't it? And that's what he says that Samaria is. I think we mentioned before the the last king of this northern kingdom was a man named Hosea, which is essentially the same name as Hosea. And it's interesting because that the name basically has to do with salvation. But he was a false hope, this king, Hosea. He did not save the people from Assyria. He could not because he was going to be cut off as the foam upon the water. It turned out he didn't have any strength in himself, and he couldn't give him any hope. The high places also of Avon, it says in verse 8 now, Avon, again, means vanity. Beth Avon means house of vanity. Avon means vanity. The sin of Israel shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall come up upon, on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. He says that 
uh, all these proud altars that they've built and their temples that they've constructed are just going to go back to nature and become ruins. The thorns and the thistles will grow up in them and they'll be forgotten. And they're actually going to, the, the, what the Assyrians is going to bring on them would be so bad that they were actually going to beg for the hills to fall on them and kill them. Now, you probably recognize that as language that's echoed in the book of Revelation during the tribulation period, in chapter 6, I think. And uh, at that time, the, the tribulation that will fall on this earth will be so bad that people will actually be begging to die and uh, won't be able to at that time. But that's what the Assyrians were going to do. We talked about last week, they were one of the cruelest nations that's ever been on this earth. And to be overrun by them was a horrible, horrible fate. And uh, the people of Israel, well, they've pushed God so far for so long and seem to be completely unaware that it's only God who has been withholding this judgment the whole time. And uh, they seem to think it can never change. And there's something about that in the human race, isn't there, that when times are good, it's hard for us to believe that they'll ever be bad again that difficulty will come or that judgment will come. That's, that's one of the reasons why so many people die lost and go to hell because they just can't believe it'll ever happen to them. That's when the punishment comes. And it, it always comes. The punishment always comes for the one who does not turn to God for His grace. They never saw it coming. It says in verse 9, O Israel, thou hast sinned from the days of Gibeah. There they stood, the battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity, did not overtake them. We talked about the Battle of Gibeah last week in Judges 19, 20, and 21, where they had a civil war there in the nation because of the great wickedness of the men of uh, the area of Gibeah. Verse 10, It is in my desire that I should chastise them, and the people shall be gathered against them when they shall bind themselves in their two furrows. And he speaks of the chastening he's going to bring against them and the people that will be gathered against them, that would be the Assyrians that are coming. It says they're going to be bound in their two furrows. And that's a little bit of an obscure reference there. He says they're going to be bound in two furrows. But probably the most likely explanation of that is those two calves that Jeroboam had made. Right? We're talking all through this about plowing and reaping and sowing. Well, Jeroboam did some plowing when he put out those two calves, didn't he? What is plowing? Plowing is preparing. It's a preparatory step for trying to grow a crop. And all the way back at the beginning of this northern kingdom, when they first break away from the southern kingdom, one of the very first things they do, and you can trace, you can trace all this wicked crop, all this wicked fruit that Israel has borne all this time, back to Jeroboam plowing, with those two calves. That's the beginning of it. That's the origin point. And uh, he says they're, they're bound in them. <laughs> well, I don't know exactly what to make of that. Maybe that means the furrow was cut so deep that they got their feet down in it and couldn't get loose. But that's what sin does to a person, doesn't it? You get yourself following after that kind of thing and start plowing in that. You get buried up. You think of that 40th Psalm where he talked about being in the miry clay. And I guess most of us that live in West Virginia know a little something about miry clay. We've got, we've got some of that around here, you know. 
And if you've ever got hung up in miry clay, you know how it is. There's, there's a point where if you keep spinning your wheels, you're just going to dig the hole deeper. You can't get yourself out. You've got to have somebody help you out. And that's the way sin is, isn't it? You, you get bound in that furrow, and you can't get yourself out. The only way to get out is to trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for you at Calvary. And he'll, he'll lift you up out of the miry clay and put your feet on the solid rock. But you can't get out on your own. They had gotten so deep in this furrow that apparently they couldn't get out of it. And you know, with the way our sin nature is constructed, a habit is an incredibly powerful thing, isn't it? It's, it's a tremendously hard thing to break any kind of a bad habit, isn't it? And it's so easy to fall back into one, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's a lot easier to fall into a ditch than to get out of one, isn't it? <laughs> you, you can fall into a ditch accidentally, but you'll have to, you'll have to get out of it on purpose. And uh, that's kind of what this furrow is. He, they, they got themselves settled in a groove. It, and it's amazing how, how long a tradition can last once you get it started. They put those calves up. By now, it's uh, been a couple hundred years. And they've had all kinds of different rulers, all different kinds of dynasties, and they've brought in all kinds of other different gods. But apparently these calves are still persisting <laughs> because they've gotten bound in that furrow. Well, he says that they're bound in their own furrows, and so the judgment is going to come, and when the judgment is going to come, they won't be able to escape. You know, I, I believe that even at this late date, if the whole nation had risen up out of their idolatry and burned all their idols and their groves and turned to God, God probably would have turned the Assyrians back. But it's too late. They've gotten themselves so deep into sin that they can't even see what's right anymore. They're utterly blinded. It says in verse 11, And Ephraim is as an heifer that is taught, and loveth to tread out the corn. But I passed over upon her fair neck, I will make Ephraim to ride, and Judah shall plow, and Jacob shall break his clods. Now, it says Ephraim is as an heifer that is taught and loveth to tread out the corn. We talked a few weeks ago about how they used to practice threshing of wheat because wheat has a hole on it that has to be gotten off, and they call it chaff once that's broken off, before you can use the grain. And, and the way they would usually do that in the old days is they would make a threshing floor. You'd have a, a floor that was of paved, paved with stones, a pretty good size, up on top of some kind of a hill or a knoll where the wind would blow freely. And you would take, normally you would take uh, oxen. It talks about oxen threshing out the wheat. And they'd walk around in the wheat, and just by treading around on it, it would, it would break the, uh, the holes off, and the wind would blow them away. And uh, that was a good job for an ox to have, <laughs> right, for a couple of reasons. One is when you're treading out the wheat or treading out the corn, you're not, uh, you're not pulling a plow. <laughs> There's no load behind you. You're not harnessed to anything. You don't have a yoke on. And the other thing is that God had specifically told them not to muzzle that ox <laughs> because that ox was to be allowed to bend down and get a bite once in a while, <laughs> Right? It was only fair for him if he's doing that work. So that's pretty good work. Uh, when you're out there plowing, there was nothing down there maybe much that you wanted to graze on. And so it was a pretty good thing to have. Well, he says this to Ephraim. The, the, the gist of this verse is they've gotten spoiled. 
He says, they, they've been up on the threshing floor eating the prosperity that I've given them, but they never had to plow. They never had to really work hard. They never, they never knew what it was to bear the yoke because they live in this age where they hadn't, they hadn't had to fight for this land. Some of the earlier generations had to come in and fight for it, and, and uh, they'd had to come in when the ground had never been broken and plow up that fallow ground. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And uh, they, had never, they had never experienced any of that. They just had easy prosperity the whole time. And uh, that was what they'd been taught. That's what they learned. And so they're just like this, this heifer that's treading out the corn. But it says, But I passed over upon her fair neck. I will make Ephraim to ride. Judah shall plow, and Jacob shall break his clods. And he says, uh, The easy time's over. You're going to have to endure something now. You're going to have to go back and do the labor. I, I mentioned something here before, and let me talk about it maybe just a little bit again. He mentioned up there in one of those earlier verses about how the thorns and thistles would grow up around the altar, or at the altars that they've made and these tabernacles or temples that they had. And uh, one of the things you find, this especially with the southern kingdom, more so actually than here with the northern kingdom, but when they went into captivity in Babylon for 70 years, uh, the, the land basically was pretty much fallow that whole time. And if you've ever been around any kind of property like that at all, you can imagine how a piece of property can grow up in 70 years. Now, it's, it's a job to keep your property cleared off every year, but it's a much bigger job <laughs> if you let it go for even a few years. And... Uh, he says, you've got this, this ground, you're going to be carried away, and you're going to have to, you're, when you come back, you're going to have to plow up some fallow ground. It's not going to be easy. They had it made in this place. All they had to do was obey God and worship Him. And He had promised them prosperity in this land, but they wouldn't obey. So, <clears throat> He says here in verse 12, Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till He come and rain righteousness upon you. We come again to this principle, that whatsoever a man soweth that shall he also reap. He says, if you'll sow righteousness, you'll reap mercy. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? Because we know that none of us are so righteous that we have no need of mercy. We all need mercy. But He says, <laughs> if you well, trust me enough to at least try to obey me. <laughs> That's all God requires, actually, is faith, isn't it? Just to trust Him and to make the effort. We never really get it right, do we? I mean, we never really get it all the way right. But thank God that if you will trust Him, there's mercy to be had. And so He tells them to sow in righteousness. Break up your fallow ground. You know what fallow ground is? That's ground that hadn't been plowed in a while. It's been left alone. And, uh, and, and that's got to be loosened up. He says that they, uh, they have some ground, spiritually speaking, that they haven't plowed up in a while. And again, that's kind of a powerful lesson for the church, isn't it? I'd say most of our churches have some fallow ground we could plow up. Maybe we have some fallow ground of prayer that we haven't really been faithful in for a while, or fallow ground of reading the Scripture, fallow ground of praising God, fallow ground of trying to tell other people about the Gospel. 
Maybe we haven't plowed some of those things in a while. And you know, the, the longer you go without doing it, the harder it is. And the harder it is to plow. The harder the dirt gets, and you have to, you have to make that effort. But that's what he tells him here. He says that you're not going to come back. You're not going to come back until you seek the Lord, and then he'll come and rain righteousness on you. But the, until you have decided to seek him, you're not coming back. And that northern kingdom to this day hasn't come back. They never have returned to this land. So that's what he says there in verse 13. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies, because thou didst trust in thy way, in the multitude of thy mighty men. See, you have the direct relationship there. There shouldn't be any surprise. It's, it's amazing how people are surprised sometimes that God punishes them for their wickedness, right? Or that if you make wicked decisions, just that bad consequences follow. And it's amazing how blind we are sometimes to see that. We, we, uh, we bring bad things on ourselves and we don't understand that it's our fault, you know. And do the same thing again. Yeah. It's, it's hard for us to learn our lessons. And that's what he said they've done. They plowed wickedness. They reaped iniquity. They've eaten the fruit of lies. Because they did trust in thy way. The scripture said there's a way that seemeth right to a man, but the end thereof is death. And they'd spent all this time trying to figure out their own path. Now, this is a distinction here between the man of faith in God and the man who's trying to figure out things on his own. And that, this is, this is a, a, a root thing about sin that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? Because in the Garden of Eden, you have a direct commandment from God about what, he's supposed, what, what we're supposed to do with that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Satan comes along and says, well, if you eat that, you'll be like a god. And what does Eve do? She looks at it and says that, well, it's good for food, and it sure is nice to look at. And if you eat it, God, uh, the devil said that he'd make you wise. And all of a sudden, you're trying to figure out whether what God told you was right, and instead of just listening to what God said, you're charting your own path now. And when you start to chart your own path, what are you doing? You're going to plow wickedness, and you're going to reap iniquity. The very first person to eat the fruit of lies was Eve, right? <laughs> we've been eating it ever since. And that's what we've learned to do. We've come to trust in our way. We've come to trust in the multitude of thy mighty men. You have a few cases in the southern kingdom where men turn to God. Hezekiah was a great example in time of war. Just to turn to God and let him fight the battle. But in the north, they're always making their political calculations about where they can make an alliance. One of the things that's going on with them during this time where they're dealing with Assyria coming is that some of them are, are talking about going down to Egypt to make an alliance with them and try to get connected down there. And we talked a little bit about that a few weeks ago when it talks about them going down to Egypt, you know. They were trying to trust in the multitude of mighty men. They never realized that the only reason the Assyrians were coming after them was because they were disobedient to God. They didn't need to send to Egypt. They just needed to get down to Jerusalem where they were supposed to and make their sin offering and get right with God. And God would have taken care of the whole thing. But they couldn't see that. 
And so the result of that is the same thing it's always been. Verse 14, Therefore shall the tumult arise among thy people, and all thy fortresses, fortresses shall be spoiled, as Shalman spoiled Beth Arbel in the day of battle, the mother was dashed in pieces upon her children. He says, The day of judgment is coming, as Shalman spoiled Beth Arbel in the day of battle. Now, that is an interesting expression right there, and we need to spend a minute with that. As Shalman spoiled Beth Arbel. <clears throat> Does anybody know where Beth Arbel is? No, nobody knows. <laughs> it's the only time it's mentioned in the Bible. Probably it is another nickname for Bethel <laughs> because Beth Arbel means the house of the ambush of God. <laughs> and so what you have here is the idea that they go down maybe to Bethel to worship their golden calf to try to ward off the offensive that is coming. And what they find there is that this place that they have turned from the house of God into the house of vanities is now the place where the judgment of God will fall upon them. Beth Arbel means the house of the ambush of God. And uh, it talks about Shalman spoiling Beth Arbel there. Now, there's also nobody named Shalman in the Bible. The Most commentaries will tell you that this refers to a, an Assyrian king named Shalmaneser. And I think that's probably wrong. Uh, because Shalmaneser's name comes from an Assyrian god named Shulmanu, or sometimes it would just be called Shalman. And uh, the Assyrians, their, their head god, or their main god, was, it was called Asher, and uh, that, because all these nations sort of had a head national god, you know. And uh, exactly how this other god, Shulmanu, or Shalman, becomes involved in the, the whole mythology there is not entirely clear. But there is some indication that he might have been a kinder, gentler version of Asher because his name literally means the friendly one. <laughs> That's what they called him, I guess, as compared to Asher, you know, who was pretty rough and <laughs> was always commanding to destroy their enemies and whatnot. Uh, we have the name Asher in some of the names. We have, there was a king named Asher Banapal. Uh, in the Bible. But this man, Shalmaneser, uh, apparently gets his name from this god, Shalman, or Shomanu. And so his name was Shalmaneser, which basically means Shalman is propitious, or some people say Shalman is preeminent. It has something to do with that. But uh, it would be my guess here that instead of actually referring to the king, this is probably another instance of Hosea's famous sarcasm. He's probably actually referring to the God, right? He says that Shalman is going to come down there and tear up your calf because your calf is not any more real than Shalman is, you know. And what you'll find down there is Beth Arbel, that you have your false God fighting against their false God, and in the middle of this, you're going to run into the real God. And then you're going to have a problem. <laughs> I think that's what I think that's what really is the gist of the whole thing, is that Shalman, their God's going to come down there to the house of your false God, and you're going to find out that when the true God takes his protection away from you, then you're in a lot of trouble. And that's what he says will happen there. Verse 15, so shall Bethel do unto you because of your great wickedness. Now notice that. 
That's why I think that Beth Arbel is probably a reference to Bethel because he says this city is going to do this to you because of your great wickedness. In a morning shall the king of Israel utterly be cut off. And he's reminding them of something. This place, Bethel, is an important place. God put his name on this place. It's called Bethel. El means God. And it's the house of God. And that's a name that goes all the way uh, back to Joseph uh, because he had his vision there. And so uh, for them to abuse this place and make it a center of idolatry was a thing that was a great offense to God. That's probably why in a number of passages in this book, Hosea refuses to call the place by its actual name because they've turned it into a house of vanities. And he says this place that once was the house of vanity is going to the place, be the place where God sends his ambush upon you and the king of Israel is going to be utterly cut off in a single day. And so that brings us to the end of this long section of judgment that we've been in since chapter 4 for several months now as we look at this. And next time, we're not going to get much into chapter 11 tonight, but next time we're going to get into this 11th chapter, and it's a wonderful chapter. Now, just to be clear, we're not done with judgment yet, okay? There's going to be some more before we get out of the book. <laughs> but the book goes to chapter 14, and, and chapters uh, 12 and, and 13 have some more things about judgment. But chapter 11 is one of the most moving and touching chapters in the whole Bible. I mentioned uh, a week or two ago, uh, really the, the high point, I think, of the chapter is in verse 8 when he looks out over this nation that he has spent so much time pronouncing his judgment upon, talking about how unfaithful they've been and how he's going to rain down judgment on them. And in the end there in verse 8 he says, How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? Because he loved them so much. And in the end, he even says, remember a few chapters back we talked about how they were going to return to Egypt? But in verse 5 he says, he shall not return unto the land of Egypt. <laughs> he, says, he says that, uh, he, he said that in, in, in anger, but his love compels him to say that even though they deserve to go back down there, and in a sense, in a, in a sort of a metaphorical sense, they're going to go into bondage again, and that's really what he was talking about in the early chapters when he was talking about going to Egypt. But he says, they're not actually going to go back down to the land of Egypt. I won't send them back down there again. He, he has this connection to this nation that goes all the way back, and we'll see this in verse 1, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Now we're going to have to spend some time on that next week because that is connected with a very important, uh, well, it's, it is a very important prophecy that's connected to the New Testament and the birth of Christ, or not the birth, but the aftermath of his birth. Uh, but he says he, he saw him all the way down in Israel and he loved him then and he loved him so much that he could never turn his back on them in the end. He was going to send them into judgment for a while, but they're not going back to Egypt where he called them from first. He's never going to send them back down there ever again. And in the end, even though they're going to into judgment, he's going to bring them back someday because his love for them is that strong. And it's hard for us to even comprehend the love of God, isn't it? At the very beginning of this book, he put the thing on the human level for us with this marriage between Hosea and Gomer. And how many of us, if we were married to a Gomer, could still love that person, you know? 
I, I don't think most of us would have that in us. I really don't. It's only through the grace of God. And the incredible love that he has for this people, even though they have turned against him every which way they could. So, Lord willing, next time we'll pick up there in chapter 11. Anybody have any questions or comments before we quit? Mark.